Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 27th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, a rapidly improving executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Just a note to begin, my dear friend Lucianne Goldberg, uh, the literary agent, provocateur, uh, inceptor of the political crisis of Bill Clinton's life because she told Linda Tripp that Linda Tripp should tape her phone calls with Monica Lewinsky um, so that there was an independent record showing uh, that uh, hijinks and tomfoolery had been going on between Lewinsky and Bill Clinton uh so she was the inceptor of lewinsky gate and uh clinton's impeachment and the uh troubles of 1998 um one of my dearest friends for 40 years passed away yesterday uh, at the age of 87 i have a tribute to her up at commentary.org if you want to take a look she was one of the foremost characters uh of the second half of the 20th century a type that we shall not see again um uh just a uh, just a uh an enchanting um uh colorful uh uh jazzy person and i think i try to evoke her in this in this post and uh, it's a beautiful and, uh, post could would you mind telling the story that you tell in the post about the um bill clinton encounter yes i had so, never heard before yes uh, okay, so sometime, let's say 2002, maybe 2003, Clinton is out of office. Uh, Lucianne lived at 84th and Broadway in Manhattan, uh, which you will remember if you if you can cast your mind back 24 years to the to the revelation of the uh, Linda Tripp Monica Lewinsky relationship. Uh, you could see Lucianne's building in the background when she held an impromptu press conference in front of it on a morning, I think in late January, early February 1998, uh, with like reporters standing around on the sidewalk screaming at her as she stood in the portico of her building asking asking her questions. Anyway, across the street from that, there was a restaurant called West, which is now called Maison Pickle. Anyway, West, uh, my wife and I were having dinner there with friends. Um, and Lucianne and her husband Sid barrel into the restaurant. It's like seven because she knew I'd said, Oh, I'm gonna be across the street from your building having dinner. She barrels and she's like, You will not believe what happened. You will not believe what happened. We were at Gabriel's, another restaurant on the Upper West Side. We're sitting there at Gabriel's, and who comes in but Bill Clinton? And Bill Clinton spots me and he walks across the hall and he says, Lucianne Goldberg. And I stand up and he throws his arms around me and gives me a hug and gives me a kiss on the cheek and says, what are you up to lady? What's going on with you? Like, and they kibitz for 10 minutes and she was just a gog. And she was like, touche, you know, she was very, she really, you know, didn't like Clinton and she didn't like Clinton ideologically. And she had been part of this sort of, you know, conspiracy to get clinton and the fact that clinton met her with such high good humor as a kind of like victory lap you know on clinton's part that to her that sealed you know her view of him changed in that moment because she was like okay you know he knows the score and he knows how to behave and he's uh you know I bow. I bow before him. Anyway, that's one of the many stories. The story I didn't tell, which I'll tell now. Uh, and then one of my favorite stories is she was a ghostwriter. Uh, she ghostwrote a whole bunch of books. She was uh, one of them was um, Maureen Dean, the wife of John Dean, contracted to write a novel. Uh you know, like a potboiler Washington, you know, novel of the sort that was very popular in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you may not remember, you may or may not remember. So Maureen Dean was the very, very pretty wife of John Dean, who had, you know, who was the White House counsel turncoat, you know, who had sort of like flipped and essentially become, you know, a witness against Nixon. And um, Maureen Dean's book comes out, it was called Washington Wives or something like that. And Lucianne wrote it and uh, Maureen Dean 
begins a press tour, you know, like to, they're hoping this book will sell a million copies. She begins it on the Today Show, and Luciana is watching. And uh, Maureen Dean is sitting there with Barbara Walters, I think, who was then the host of the Today Show, who's, who, who says, now, Maureen, it's a very interesting plot here because you have, you know, so-and-so who is obviously sort of a stand-in for you doing thus and such and other here. And Maureen Dean goes, yeah, it's, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I get like that. And it became clear after like 60 seconds that Maureen Dean hadn't read the book. <laughs> That she hadn't bothered to read the novel that had been ghosted in her name before she started the press tour, and they canceled the press tour, and the book was dead. That that is that that is uh, that was that story. It's not really a story about Luciana. It's more a story about the world of uh, high promotion. Anyway, so that's that's uh, at commentary.org. You can you can read about it. Um, of course, uh, her son Jonah Goldberg is. Um, also one of my dearest friends and uh somebody you know i do another podcast with and have for a decade now or around a decade and um and uh my heart our hearts go out to him and to his wife jessica and his daughter lucy but um uh, lucianne led a led a really remarkable uh and enjoyable life i would say and uh and uh she made the most of her time on earth so and who among us can say that? Uh, certainly not many in the Democratic Party right now who are staring down the barrel of horror. Um, this morning in The Hill, um, veteran Democratic pollster Mark Melman, who has a column and is an honest pollster uh, and was one of the people I remember in 2004, the weekend before the election in 2004, who said, this isn't going John Kerry's way. I know you see things that suggest it's going John Kerry's way, but I, I adduce from this and that and the other thing, this is not happening and people better start getting used to disappointment. Um, and that was not something that you wanted to say as a professional Democrat because it would be seen as disloyal or you were going to, you know, like... You were going to depress people or something like that, but he, but he couldn't help himself, and he saw what he saw. He says this morning that it will be a Herculean achievement for uh, for Democrats to retain the Senate. I mean, he says for them to win both houses, but if, effectively, he's saying it will be a Herculean achievement for them to now that. If we're now at the point where Democrats are going to have to be praised as having achieved something Herculean simply by remaining at 50-50, when, you know, as of two months ago, they were leading in, uh, this, you know, leading in, uh, in I'm sorry. Uh, Just about I'm, everywhere, I'm everywhere yeah. that they had a Trumpy candidate. Pennsylvania, and they were leading in Georgia. They were leading in Nevada. They were leading in Arizona. Cook Political Report in... this morning has Arizona is now a toss-up uh, Senate race with Blake Masters, whom we all declared dead two two months ago. And he still is a reach. But the reach seats well, are not now a reach, becoming less reach. It's a toss-up. Right. Well, it's it was a reach. reach. Well, the reaches. The if Arizona is a reach, well, there's corollaries. If Arizona is no longer a reach, New Hampshire is no longer a reach. And then the reach seats are Colorado and Washington and, and Washington. So those are reaches, right? Those are, but even there where you could say, well, Republicans have fielded, you know, very good, can very good individual candidates, but look, the state's composition just means you can't expect that it should, yeah, they feel, feel these say O'Day in Colorado, Tiffany Smiley in Washington, and they're really good candidates. I, but, I was, you know, I was on. I'm sorry, just because yeah, I've ahead. been doing this for 24 hours now. I went on Suicide Watch last night. Um, the total, I've never, never seen anything like this. The wake of the of the Fetterman debate said yesterday. I can't imagine how this doesn't land like a meteor in this race. It landed like a meteor in that race and every other race. Um, Democrats have a total morale collapse of a degree that I haven't seen in a very long time. One of those very good pieces by Annie Linsky in the Washington Post. Um, is replete with quotes uh, from Democrats really unnerved by where they have to spend money. They have to spend money in Connecticut. They have to spend money in New Jersey. They have to spend money in the boroughs of New York City, Washington, California, Oregon, all these states where crime is a real significant issue. 
and eating into seats that they don't believe they should have. Quote, one Democratic strategist who spoke on condition of anonymity to be more candid described a, quote, blue state depression for House races, pointing specifically to New York, Oregon, California, where a handful of races are, quote, closer than normal. Some Democrats pointed to fatigue in blue areas over pandemic restrictions, one-party dominance, the concerns about violent crime and quality of life in places like Portland, Oregon, New York City, and San Francisco. There's a companion piece uh, in the uh, NBC, in NBC News that is just brutal, the degree, degree to which it is just savaging the campaign professionals who should never work again, according to one uh, named Democratic source uh, in this piece for how they mishandled this, uh, this race. Quote, I really question the judgment that he continues with this race is a Democratic source talking about Fetterman as though he could drop out two weeks before the race. There is a New York Times piece that should never have been written, which makes no sense that it was ever written. I kept scrolling to see if there was more to it. There is no more to it. It consists exactly of three paragraphs from Blake Hounshell. It's titled, Here's an Alternate History of the 2022 Midterms, and which concludes, it's worth considering whether there were any alternate approaches that could have put Democrats in a better position heading into the final days. What better approaches? He doesn't say. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't even speculate. It's just a prebituary, just a, a lament to the heavens about the abject state in which they find themselves. Look at the calendar. There's there's a week and a half left. Things can change. But they have resigned themselves to what is about to befall their party. It doesn't feel like things can change. And that is where I think the Fetterman debate, not that people write history this way, but will will be seen as sort of like the last import obviously i mean you know th there could be a nuclear war between now and now and november 8th but the fetterman debate on tuesday represented some kind of a um a crossing of the rubicon in other words like the the hopes that uh, democrats were going to defy gravity so much so that it they could even structurally manage to pull out pull off having a having a, a an impaired stroke victim win a Senate race in, in Pennsylvania. Um, when that pin was pulled out of the balloon, you know, you don't pull a pin out of a balloon. When, whatever you, however you want to put it. It's a grenade you pull a pin out of. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's some sense in which it's like, well, if that's not going to happen, nothing is going to happen. And it's like, well, what what is going to come along to change this trajectory? Well, but we're, aren't we now then officially in the too little, too late moment of the Democrats' uh, midterm election strategy? Because what you're seeing is, and and uh, Biden's flying today to Syracuse, New York. He's going to give a speech. They did some uh, background briefing uh, for reporters about it yesterday. And the memo has gone out. And the message is that by Biden and the Democrats are, are and I have to quote it because I've been practicing saying it, they're going to defeat the mega mega trickle down agenda that will increase inflation and costs for families. So they're they're focusing finally on the economy, which is not a good issue for them because the the with with inflation, what it is. Um, but they're but they're still adopting this mega mega language, which I, again they must have they must have tested it. The consultants must have told them this works. I think it sounds kind of like ridiculous flailing, even though I'm not a mega person. But to but to try to tar an entire party with a mega mega trickle down agenda at a time when people have been saying over and over again, worried about gas prices, worried about food, it's still too abstract. It's still too mushy headed, um, and it still doesn't get to the to the point of dealing of of actual practical policies that will reduce inflation. So we had an interesting U.S. Census Bureau household survey released uh, this week, which found that almost 41% of households that had been somewhat difficult or very difficult to cover their usual household expenses. It's the highest number since August 2020. And they also said, this is reported in Bloomberg for anyone who wants to read the full story, the share is even higher in three battleground states, Nevada, Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. So this is a problem for Democrats that they're only now willing to talk about. The same, I think, is true of violent crime, which you're you're suddenly seeing a few Democrats kind of give a nod to violent crime. But it's too little too late. I, I think there's no way, <clears throat> to be honest, that the mega mega trickle down is um, is sort of tested language, a because it's terrible. <laughs> B because it, it's insane. It, it couldn't be it's successfully kind of though. It's uh, taught to Joe Biden either, right? So I it has to be an off the cuff thing. But um, the 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 more important, the more serious thing, the 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 figure you the, you 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 bring up, Christine, about um, 
American households, um, really goes to show the callousness of those who complain, as we were t- talking a few days ago, uh, those who, who defend the administration saying, can you believe, given our unemployment rate, that there are people out there who are willing to complain about this economy? You know, how, how out of touch they are. We're look, we're we're talking right now. We're taping this. It's 820 in the morning on the on the on the East Coast. In about 10 minutes, we're going to get third quarter GDP numbers. And they're gonna be good. And uh sorry, that's my 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 dog there in the background. Um they're gonna be good. And again, we're gonna have this war between the macro and the micro, right? The war is Unemployment rates are good. The economy is growing. That is not how people experience economic life. That that discrepancy is leading to some real psychological tension uh, on the left. And John, you highlighted this for us yesterday. I don't even know if you want to bring it to the podcast, but I'm bringing it to the podcast. Um, Professor at the University of Florida who specializes in American elections, self-styled election expert, one of America's foremost in his own mind, Michael McDonald, having a very public meltdown on Twitter over the course of the last 24 hours, it is ongoing at present, uh, in, in part because he can't reconcile the data, the numbers, with this sentiment abroad that there's going to be this epic collapse in the Democratic position in the next two weeks. The numbers don't make sense to him. The data, the, the uh, forecasts and polling data doesn't suggest this. Inflation numbers don't suggest it. Gas prices numbers don't suggest it. And he's just attacking this narrative. There's a narrative abroad that he can't reconcile with the with the data and so he's just making a rather uh humiliating fool of himself on twitter as a result nevertheless i understand the tension there because if you're if you're a macroeconomic or macro numbers guy and all these data the data folks are the data has been in tension with the idea that there is going to be this red wave red tsunami it looks like now um and the data is wrong <laughs> i and think that, we all that agree is- that the data is just not capturing the sentiment in ways that just don't compute with people who believe that you can reduce the world to numbers. Well, and that and to add to that, I read the the background briefing memo that the that the White House was giving to reporters about the mega mega trickle down economics. Ooh, see, it's really it is catchy. It sounds like a children's show mega, theme mega or something. trickle down yeah exactly right like yeah. the wheels on the bus and all yeah no, um, yeah or uh or you know the wiggles <laughs> the wiggles yes it's yeah. very much a wiggles type phrase yeah. but it it focuses as as Noah was saying it focuses on these very macro issues it says basically arguing that the republicans regain power in, in congress they're going to make your health care expenditures go up gas prices will energy expenses will rise and anyone with half a brain will look at that and go well, they can't possibly make things worse. I mean, I think that's got to be the motivation for a lot of sort of average or even kind of independent voters are looking at things and going, all right, well, you've had it. You've had a chance. You've made a hash of it. Things aren't we're not experiencing this as an economic uptick, even if the GDP numbers say it, that most people don't even know what the GDP numbers are or care. They want an answer, political response to their actual felt needs. And they're not getting that from the Democratic Party. They're getting mega mega trickle down. They're getting extremist arguments. They're getting abortion. That's what they're getting. But that's not what they're living. Um, Also uh, come up uh, in stories after story in the last like 24 hours uh, are rueful Democratic complaints that they leaned too heavily on abortion. Uh, that they should have tied abortion into a larger message about personal freedom or something like that, that they that they viewed abortion as some kind of a life raft and they overused it or they drained it of its light livelihood or whatever, however you want to put it, uh, or it's or it's uh, life strength or whatever. Um, and that's interesting as a form of precrimination because um that's all they had like that that's what they had in late in late june gas prices were going up inflation was going up all that and they got thrown this issue uh that could motivate you know at least part of their base and they 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 grabbed onto it like a life raft and and it worked in some sense i mean it gave them six weeks of life and if other aspects of american reality had shifted in their direction, um, maybe abortion would have been a jumping off point to make larger arguments to say, don't don't turn on us. We're we're doing a good job and you know more 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 to come. Things are going to continue to get better. 
<clears throat> but they didn't, or at least not in the American public perception. And A, they didn't. And then B, you know, Trump came along with the Mar-a-Lago raid and the scene about all this. And then they jump onto that as another secondary issue, reminding people they don't like Trump. So you've got abortion, you got Trump. But none of it speaks to how I'm doing right now. Abortion doesn't speak to how I'm doing right now. And Trump doesn't speak to how I'm doing right now. These are effectively side issues that could serve as ballast for a central argument. There is a right. Okay. Yeah. There's a, to that effect, my Congressman in New Jersey's seventh district, Tom Milanowski has been on the edge of the bubble for a long time. This is a Republican leaning district went, went democratic in 2018. So it's one of those places you got to pick up. And I think it's been off the board for a long time. Um, but he's his opponent is Tom King Jr., who's the son of a former governor of this state, pretty well known, very well known in this district. Um, and he's just not campaigning against him. He put a message out last night where he was like, "My if my opponent wins, this guy's going to get power. And this guy is a candidate for Congress in Georgia's 10th district. I had never seen him before. I do this for a living. I have no idea who this person is. I had to Google him. Um, the idea that. New Jersey voters in Western New Jersey are going to be energized to go to the polls to vote against a guy in Georgia is about as bank shoddy as you can get. That's like three diamonds of a bank shot. Uh, Another news, and this is a pretty fascinating side story. Remember, we talked yesterday about uh, the Zeldin uh, Hochul debate in, in New York. And Abe pointed out that I had said something about how it was interesting that Zeldin kept returning to the issue of attacks on Jews and violence against Jews. So you may have heard that Sean Patrick Maloney, the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, who was a congressman in a new, who was a congressman that his district was 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 redrawn, uh, is now um, in the fight of his life and the may may lose in a toss up district. So Maloney's district includes. Uh, these very Hasidic areas in, uh, uh, you know, north of New York City. Maloney's district includes this town, New Square. New Square plays an interesting role, has played an interesting role in recent New York State political history, as it is the home of the um, Skver Hasidim. It is the center of Skver Hasidim, a sect among uh, Hasidim, uh, run by a rabbi named David Torsky or David Torsky. Uh, so here's the story. The story is that in previous elections dating back to the 90s, the the square follow the rabbi's dictates, the rabbis di- in, in terms of whom they should vote for. So, for example, in 1992, <clears throat> New Square voted. Here was the vote total for George. H.W. Bush, 822 for Bill Clinton, 93. In 1996, Clinton, 1110 voters, Bob Dole, 31. In 1994, Mario Cuomo, 907, George Pataki, 63. But in 1998, Pataki, 1132 to Democrat Peter Vallone's eight. Uh, And then most famously, uh, Hillary Clinton, during her Senate race uh, in 2000, visited Torsky, went to his house and received almost 100 percent of the vote in New Square. Okay, so that is the story of New Square's, you know, up for grabs, come kiss the ring, you know, show your, show your fealty or your, you know, or your respect to the, to the Rebbe. He will say, you guys should vote for, you guys should vote for uh, this could be a Republican, could be a Democrat, whatever. Yesterday, President Joe Biden called Rabbi Torsky and basically said, tell me what you need, Rabbi, (laughs) Rabbi Torsky. So that people, I mean, I, this is the effective effect, so that people will vote for Sean Patrick Baloney. I don't think he was calling to say vote for 
Kathy Hochul. He might have been. I don't know. I don't think that after what we saw in the debate that that was going to be a particularly successful approach. But this was about Sean Patrick Maloney and getting some kind of lopsided turnout on his behalf. Um, uh, The president of the United States makes a phone call to see if he could, you know, get a thousand votes for um, for a guy who, given that he was running the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, should not be in very much trouble. It's been 42 years since the head of a campaign committee. That, that is the person who disperses the money that other people get uh, to run on, you know, from Washington, ra- raised centrally. Like that person is one of the reasons that you take that job is to achieve the job security in your own reelection campaign. So you can focus on the elections of others. So the idea is you, you know, you're taken care of now try to get the other 222 Democrats reelected. You will have an open door to my administration. Biden reportedly told Rabbi Tursky in the 15 minute phone call according to rocklanddaily.com and confirmed by Jacob Cornblue of the forward. You will have an open door to my administration. This is what the president has to do 12 days before the election. Kind of stunning in my view. Um, and uh, by the way, I don't know now, 22 years after the sort of the Hillary hundred percent vote thing, if that will still that would still hold among the Sphere and the people of New Square. They are obviously very much loyal and have great fealty toward the Rebbe, but um, even that com- community has gotten much more politicized. I've you know drives around and listens to talk radio and stuff like that, and uh, and is presumably very 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 Republican by now, like most Orthodox Jews are or ultra-Orthodox Jews, certainly. So I I just think that's an interesting piece of data, that this is triage. Like, they are running around a ship, taking tar, slapping it, slapping up holes in the, you know, in the hull, and just hoping, you know, that the entire thing doesn't go down. Uh, we got GDP numbers in, by the way. Okay. Um, and- 2.6% growth Okay, in July through September which is sub-replacement level growth, but still good growth, especially coming off two consecutive negative quarters. Um, however, we should, I mean, and, and it would be malpractice not to pump this number up as much as you can. Everybody will. But every economist, and literally every economist, well, 100% of economists expect a recession in 2023, which means double dip. And double dips are bad. Um, again, I, I don't want to like, talk things down because why would i talk you know who care like it doesn't matter what, it's not what me I talking us down i'm just no, no, no. reading the no, consensus no, no, no. Of the i don't want to talk this down except to say these that expectations. often when you have quarters after recessions uh they're explosive explosive because of course gdp when you measure this you're measuring it not against some baseline but against where it was in the previous quarter right so we had two straight negative quarters you turn from retraction to growth and there is often an accelerant effect with the growth you know then go up to just back to around where it was before there was a recession or even back before there was covid you know it would be it could be double that it could be triple that you know what i mean like it could be that could also be a sugar high but you know you you could just as easily have expected not that people did because they got this number pretty close but you know in a serious uh, end of recession moment, you would go up four, five, six, seven percent in that one quarter. So, I don't know. You know, um, it's uh, it's problematic. Um, but in the short sense. term, they're going to talk this up and say that you know, happy days are here again. They have to. But just to go back to what we were saying like twenty minutes ago, that that can sound clueless. I mean. Yeah, you take good news where you get it, but it can sound clueless to say, look what we did. We got us, you know, we're, we're the economy is growing again. Now, obviously you should say it, but if 
households are struggling to pay grocery bills. But this is the tension that is producing this psychological meltdown on the part of people like Michael McDonald. They're looking at the numbers and they say, this doesn't make any sense. All you people have, this is him right now. All you people have are vibes. I've got numbers. You don't have evidence to support any of your contentions here that this is going to be this terrible year. And yet you look around and you see all the evidence in the universe that is going to be a terrible year for Democrats. I, I, the problem with the McDonald thing and McDonald's a very valuable person in American public life because he literally is the unofficial vote counter of the United States. It's to him. You turn like every day to say, okay, you know, the, the end of the ending vote total is not 63 million to 60 million. He keeps counting, he keeps aggregating results on an hourly or even daily basis and gets you to the final, you know, the final number. And uh, that that's that's valuable. And it's valuable during the course of the week after the elections. And he right now is doing early vote tallying, which is also interesting, by the way, because depending on where you're looking, Democrats are already underperforming in the early vote, particularly in Nevada, uh, where we are where you do not see wild Democratic enthusiasm to vote as expressed in early voting numbers. They are they are less than they were in 2018, and I think they're less than they were. So, it, it, so that that's an issue. Uh, we do see l- large numbers in Georgia, um, but it's not entirely clear that that represents like you know extreme Democratic enthusiasm. Anyway, it's sort of interesting. But but I I, I look at this and I say the problem here is: Do you think that people are or are not struggling? And are they are they not struggling in a way that is different from the way people ordinarily struggle to make ends meet and all of that? And the answer is yes. And this is another thing where age would help somebody like Michael McDonald, because what we're in is in an inflationary spiral. And inflationary spirals can accom- can be accompanied by indeed classically were accompanied by uh, growth, uh, which, you know, uh, and so growth and inflation are not are not enemies they they can be friends and so what's affecting people is infl- is inflation and wage growth which is real is simply not can't keep up with 8% inflation like you'd need an 8% rate you know if you get a 6% raise that's great congrats you know that's a pretty good raise that's a great raise if Household goods are up 8%, or in some cases, more than 8%, right? Food was up double digits, I think. Like, so your purchasing power is eroding. You're making less, you're making more, and it, and it, and it, and it's worth less. That's what inflation is. And you can't GDP your way out of that. That's, that's the problem. It's just a fact of life that people experience inflation on a daily basis and they do not experience GDP growth and they don't experience unemployment rates going down on a daily basis. They they do over time because unemployment rates going down means upward pressure on wages. You're a worker, you get it, you'll get a raise. That's good. You know, GDP growth is good. It, you know, it it makes the economy bigger and that's better for everybody. But that's not how you feel when you go to the gas pump or you go, even though the, even, though, even though, again, this is the other thing you're going to hear a lot from the white house. Gas prices are down. They're down for a third straight week. Gas prices are down. They're still at like three and a half bucks. That's a lot of money for gas. When you, particularly when your grocery bills are higher, closer to four in some places, <laughs> higher, right? Exactly. Right? Where they're down is where they don't, where Democrats don't need them to be down in the deep right. South. Right. I don't know. Anyway, so um, the I said earlier that I felt like the 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 Fetterman debate was the key, a, a kind of the key moment, and sort of like that we're now here on this kind of um, Democrats are now in a slough of despond. They're going to try very hard to make waves so that the ship can move, but that you know outside totally un, 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 unpredictable exogenous factors there it just seems very there, there's very little there's a very melodramatic moment that was not not good for them and has it and speaks to the larger question of 
political control in Washington to anybody who was paying attention in that sense, which is like, I don't know that Fetterman can, you know, I, so Fetterman, I mean, here's, here's how it works as a bank shot. Fetterman loses in Pennsylvania. Democratic hopes of taking over the Senate or of, of, of maintaining their control of the Senate. I, I don't know what the number is, you know, I'm not like, but they go down 40%, let's say. You know, that was supposed to be the takeaway that they needed <clears throat> to balance a Republican takeaway somewhere, like in Georgia or in Arizona or something. And uh, that's not going to happen. So it goes down 40%. So you could see Democratic enthusiasm to vote cratering because it's like, ah, what's the point? Now, maybe that's too complicated. Most people don't vote that way. They're not paying attention to Pennsylvania. They're only paying attention to their own states. I don't know, though. But I mean, no, but I think there's would... something. I think there's something that's there's a very simple version of that. It's not complicated. Um, early during this podcast, Noah said, "Well, look at the calendar. There's still time. Things could turn around." And yet, I I think the opposite is sort of true. In that, I think there's a momentum to this final turn, where things where 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 the 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 Republican advantage simply speeds up on up by virtue of its own momentum. It's not, I don't think it's a considered thing about lo looking at Fetterman necessarily and looking at, 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 at Pennsylvania. Um, I think it's just the sort of life cycle that, that, that these things have. Yeah. I think it gets more dramatic by the day from here on out. Yeah. I should say that you know, the Fetterman debate wasn't what forced the, House Majority Pact, Democratic House Majority Pact to place ad buys in New Jersey's fifth, New York's third, New York's 18th last night. Um, you know, that that is a response to trends they've been seeing in the data for quite some time. It probably accelerates that trend. But yeah, I mean, like, I'm just trying not to have a failure of imagination here in the event that some catalyzing thing happens that re-energizes Democrats. It's not impossible. But yes, the Fetterman debate was just the latest example of conditions that are clearly depressing democratic voters i want to give you an example of something <clears throat> where political hits don't have the effect that they're supposed to because they shouldn't for like almost novelistic reasons so there's this new story out about herschel walker and another woman who 30 years ago he supposedly pressured to have an abortion so the first story came out and it was, you know, there was a there was a, a card, you know, there was a canceled check. There was this data, uh, you know, showing that this was a credible accusation that he had pressured this woman to have an abortion. Okay, and so it was like, okay, well, he must. This is going to be really bad because pro lifers won't like it. And then it turned out that, as Dana Lash or others said, like they didn't care because what they want is for Republicans to control the Senate. And now there's another story about a, a pressure to have an abortion. And you could already see Democrats are in a kind of impotent rage that this story isn't having the effect on Herschel Walker that it should have, that he pressured women to have an abortion. But they're in no position to make hay out of this story since the major Democratic narrative of 2022 is these insane people are trying to make abortion illegal and abortion should be legal. And you're not allowed to question when you get an abortion, why you get an abortion, what the causes or conditions are. Abortion is healthcare. And therefore whatever reason a woman might have, including being pressured by a boyfriend to have an abortion is not something to be questioned. So how can they make hay out of it? Right. Herschel Walker you know, so very generously paid for essential health care. I mean, I mean, I'm just saying like people are interesting and jagged and they didn't, they did not fall for the oppo. Now you can then say that speaks to a moral, that speaks to a moral crisis among uh, social conservatives that they are willing to sacrifice first principles for political expediency, but that's something that we could say or that other social conservatives can say, but it's not from the party that it's okay to pull a baby out halfway through the mother's birth canal and then crush its skull and suck out its brains to say you don't get to have moral outrage about 
somebody pushing somebody else to get this procedure. Well, hold on. Is it possibly like what conservatives say when uh, a sort of socialist leaning uh, Democrat turns out to be a rapacious capitalist? Yeah, I was going to say it's pointing We're out in the favor hypocrisy. of we think capitalism is a, is a perfectly fine thing, but it's still worth pointing out that that they are full of it. Yeah, I, I read that attack, but all of the attacks about abortion is pointing out the candidate's hypocrisy, sort of saying he 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 took advantage of this right because he could. And he's now if you elect him, he'll take it away from you. So I saw it as a basic hypocrisy point. But they but I agree with with what John is saying about the difficulty of Democrats actually talking about abortion when it comes down to it, because Fetterman and others have said there should be zero restrictions. That is an extremist position highly extremist positions. It's just as extreme as saying there should be no exceptions for rape and incest to allow someone to have an abortion. So it's it, they they actually haven't found a comfortable way to discuss this and calling it using euphemisms like healthcare isn't that's really not fooling anyone. I, I've got to say, I, I think there's something tremendously important about why abortion hasn't been the dispositive issue that we thought it would be, or at, at least at some point that I thought it would be uh, for, for this election. And, and I don't I still don't have haven't I don't quite understand why it's the case. Well, I have a I. What was in what's interesting about abortion becoming an issue, as it did in June, is that it was new. It was unprecedented. Abortion had not been, you know, I mean, it, it's been talked about constantly in elections. Right. But this was the first time in which pro-choicers found themselves with an issue that might provoke the kind of intensity to vote on the issue of abortion that pro-lifers have always had or really had since, since it became a voting issue really in the late 70s, right? Roe was 73. Jimmy Carter was pro-life in 76. Democratic platform was pro-life in 1976. This changed in 1980, really. And so you had a kind of flipping, and then you had this intensity on the issue of abortion, which gathered steam as evangelical Christians joined with Catholics on their sense that abortion was murder. And democratic or liberal ideas that, you know, abortion should be legal, A, first of all, it was legal. So, you know, there was no real force behind it or not enough force behind it. And, and there was no real challenge. So suddenly it was there, nothing like it had been seen, this uh, shift that made it something that politicians needed and had to talk about. And um, <clears throat> uh, there was every reason to think, oh my God, you know, we just don't have a roadmap for this. We don't know how it's gonna play. We don't, you know, you can't say, oh, this is just like when they did thus and such, because there was literally nothing analogous to this maybe slavery maybe you know maybe after the civil war and you know the you know the the fact that slavery had ended i don't know what else can even compare to it and so there was reason to think my god you know in unprecedented circumstances all kinds of weird things can happen and i will say again that if we were not in an inflationary crisis maybe that would have been sufficient unto the day to be an accelerant issue for Democrats, and there would was no accelerant issue for Republicans, other than you know we're the out party and you should vote for us because it's a midterm. But there are plenty of accelerant issues, and then you have this one giant accelerant issue, and you know it's a giant accelerant issue because poll after poll says forty percent of the public says this is the most important issue. That's an enormous number. I mean, I don't know that we ever have seen particularly in sort of day-to-day -day, you know as i say go go along things that we've ever seen a number like that so much so that republicans didn't even have to advertise on it they went to a secondary issue to ballot you know they went with crime because it's almost like they didn't need to make the case about inflation i mean if you think about it, that's kind of striking. Like, it's not like they've been running. I mean, they say whatever they say, but, you know, the commercials on crime and you're, oh, my God, they took and they went and they went with all these commercials on crime. Well, because they didn't have to do commercials on abortion or the uh, on, on inflation or the economy. 
So that would be my, that's why I think we were all, this is an X factor and X factors can have an enormous effect. And it did, you know, it raised an insane amounts of money. They raised insane amounts of money. They won this big victory in Kansas. And I think, as I said the other day, it could be that that victory was Pyrrhic because by winning it, they drained, they, you know, they, they, some of the air came out of that subject or pressure valve, I guess, as you said, Abe, earlier. Um, Noah, you wanted to bring up a very interesting uh, uh, event in a Staten Island courtroom, I think, on Tuesday, which is is well worth uh, talking about. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, so uh, a um, this case has been before uh, the courts for some time involving New York City's uh, COVID vaccine mandate for municipal workers. Uh, this went into force uh, earlier this year. And it was enforced. Roughly 1,700 uh, city workers refused to take a COVID vaccine, uh, and they were let go, summarily fired. And a uh, in a 13-page ruling yesterday, or two days ago, within the last 24, 48 hours, a, a judge in Staten Island um, said that this violated the separation of powers doctrine, reinstated these employees, dismissed the vaccine mandate for municipal workers, reinstated these workers with back pay. Uh, and invalidated uh, this this initiative for which there's no enthusiasm left. I mean, maybe there will be an effort to challenge this, like the federal government challenged the uh, affront to the TSA's authority to impose mask mandates on you, mask mandates on you. But nobody wants mask mandates to come back for a, from a political sense. Just listen to how Democratic politicians in every debate stage so far this year have been running away from the idea of mandates, mask oh, mandates, vaccine for, uh, mandates. Yeah. yeah. With with rare exceptions, those exceptions prove the rule. The rule is Hochul that was for are... him, right? Ho- no, 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 no. She said not right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to Hochul in a minute, but 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 generally, yes. So this is it. it you get yeah. the the sense that this is radioactive. Maybe there there will be an appeal just just to preserve this, the potential to do something like this in the future. But it does sort of it's it takes an issue off the table that Democrats really didn't want to have to defend anymore. They had gone completely COVID mad in 2021, early 2022. And now, and obviously the courts have pared back all of it. The OSHA of vaccine mandates, the moratorium mandates, everything that was justified by the pandemic has been pared back by the courts for the most part. And um, this is a, it's a big blow to those who want to see COVID rule our lives, but that does not include democratic politicians. So this might just be a little bit of a gift, even though it totally undermines the messaging that they've been trying to the the needle they've been trying to thread very fine needle but we don't like mandates but also covid's kind of an emergency but covid's actually over but we don't want it to come back as an emergency so we kind of have to defer to these mitigation measures even though we know you're not deferring to these mitigation measures it's it's very confused it's a weird decision <clears throat> and the city is responding psychotically the decision only applies to people who brought the suit, as it, as it should. I mean, it applies to people who brought the suit, who were told that they had been dismissed unjustly and that they needed to be reinstated uh, with back pay. However, um, the city's health director, uh, I'm trying to find the quote again, I'm sorry, I should have had it to hand. Uh, basically said uh we're, we're we're still maintaining the mask mandate for municipal workers now i don't think that's going to stand they'll they'll quietly get rid of it but what he said and what what is interesting is yeah a spokesperson for the city's law department this is in a website called gothamist said the city mandate is still in place for all workers outside of the suit and what the judge said is there is nothing in the record to support the rationality of keeping a vaccination mandate for public employees while vacating the mandate for private sector employees or creating a carve out for certain professions like athletes, artists, and performers. And they have filed an appeal, but how crazy would it be to maintain this appeal? I mean, 
I don't think anybody, I mean, the odd part is you now have different factors, factions in the Democratic coalition, health Nazis and union workers who are now going to be totally at odds with each other. Right. Kind of the mask as mask as social justice, you know, uh, or, you know, left wing badge like a like a like a flag pin in late 2001 or calling French fries freedom fries were for the right versus people whose job it is as members of the unions to to reject any effort to dismiss any worker uh, from, you know, who is in their in their union. And it is kind of amazing. And what happened yesterday after Kathy Hochul's disastrous uh, debate performance on Tuesday night, which she, you know, the only hope that Hochul has is that A, nobody saw it, and that B, you know, it doesn't really matter because she's going to win because she's the generic Democrat voting running against a generic Republican. She came out to give a Cuomo-like press conference talking about this uh, absolutely real surge in the in RSV. Uh, you know the sort of the ch- the childhood uh, respiratory illness that is exploding outward everywhere. Why? Because nobody got it in 2020 or 2021. Because everybody was home and nobody was going to school. Kids didn't get diseases, and now these diseases are like slamming into people. Another interesting question about why why lo- that that raises the question of lockdowns and whether they had a overall deleterious effect that would have been better for kids to either get COVID or not get COVID and live through it than to have been prevented from interacting with each other. And now they may get slammed with all kinds of diseases that their systems are are not equipped to handle their immune systems. So she gave this Cuomo-like press conference and basically said, look, uh, I'm not going to, we're not making a mandate out of it now, but, you know, parents should really consider putting their kids in masks like daycare centers. Kids were in masks and, you know, I've seen a lot of nice masks out there, said Kathy Hochul. I've seen a lot of nice masks out there. There's a wonderful, well, wonderful in a kind of political sense photo. Uh, she has one and, and Stacey Abrams has an infamous one, too, where Hochul is in a classroom or in some at some you know child care facility. And all the adults are standing in a row with a bunch of very young children in front of them. None of the adults has a mask on. Every single young child is masked. And there was a similar picture of Stacey Abrams sitting on the floor of like a kindergarten age classroom. All the kids masked. She doesn't have a mask. And there is like those images. I think the politicians forget that that. When people look at that, they see they don't see what Hochul and Abrams think they see, which isn't like, look at this wonderful politician protecting our children. What they see is, why is that idiot unmasked? Well, my kid, who actually is in this very important and crucial moment of development and learning language in particular, needs to see people's faces to understand emotion. Why are they masked? When they're they, the they, lowest risk. That's in the co- condescension and contempt for that point of view still is per- pervasive, even though it's it's totally justified. It's scientifically justified at this stage. And it's reflective of a, a really politically dangerous thing to, to go against in January. It wasn't that long ago. She gave one of these Cuomo-esque press conferences where she castigated the adults. And it's only ever adults who care about masks uh, who for saying, you know, my daughter has a meltdown every time I have to put her sneakers on to go to, to kindergarten. But she got used to wearing shoes in school they adapt better than adults do. And it's just so dismissive of the idea that maybe children need visual stimuli in order to comprehend human the, the nonverbal cues that accompany human interaction and effective communication. And when you deprive them of that, they're deprived of, of their, a, a valuable, not just valuable, essential part of their socialization. And they just dismiss it, condescend. You're the functional equivalent of a of a two year old having a tantrum over this. You know, there was there's was all this talk, and you know, this this uh, there was a lot of rueful reminders of this when the National Assessment of Educational Progress numbers came out about the calamitous educational loss. You know, uh, whenever that was, you know, maybe it was Monday, maybe it was last week. I don't even remember. <laughs> I think it was this um, week. everything is just, you know, glomming together, but where people were reminded people of this kind of like children are resilient and they'll get it back and all of that. And, you know, 
kids are resilient. Like people survive civil wars and they survive the Holocaust and they, they get through and they make lives for themselves, but all things being equal, you don't want their resiliency to be tested in this way. Their resiliency should be tested. If you want resiliency to be tested, resiliency by definition shouldn't be tested. You know, it's, I mean, we, there are ritualistic, there are rituals that, you know, the growth rituals at puberty where sometimes people get tested for their resilience, but you don't test. Right. It's, it's actually sadistic. It is. They're talking about yeah, like, resilience when they don't need it. Yeah. We're, we're, your kid is going to emerge hardened and calloused and cynical about the world. Yeah. Yay. And the whole, yeah, the whole, yeah. I mean, the whole point about the masking of kids during COVID is they didn't need to be masked because they weren't getting sick and dying from it. And if they were getting sick, they were developing antibodies from it. And out of, you know, a million, two deaths now, 1400 uh, were under the age of five. So it's not even a statistical, it doesn't even exist as a statistically achievable number to say what the percentage of kids was who got very, very sick from COVID. And, you know, here we are. And now, now if RSV, if you have to mask for RSV and that becomes something that is now preached, what are you going to have to mask for? I mean, really, if you know, I mean, are are we now literally going to live in a conditional circumstance in which everybody has masks at home? Because any given day, you might hear, "Oh, you know, there are kids who have uh, there's a kid with mono at my school, so I bet we better all wear masks." I mean, this is so good. Let so let Kathy Hochul add this to the test case of whether or not she can survive on November eighth. You know, I wouldn't bet against her. Not sure I would bet for her either, though. Meanwhile, at the top, you know, at the top of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden yesterday publicly got his booster, one like his umpteenth booster, I will call it, because I'm not, is it fourth, fifth, who knows? You know, once again, reiterating the more apocalyptic tone of, you know, this is a crisis, having just last month said that the pandemic was over. And he invited all these influencers to the White House again to kind of like, you know, boost the booster or whatever, whatever it is, you know, it, it, it's always kind of painful to see him, you know, as grandpa's grandpa Biden talking to the TikTok influencers. It just kind of makes you shudder. But that is another example of, again, this mixed messaging. We've talked about this for, for year, a couple of years now on the podcast. What is the tone? They need to set a tone with regard to the upcoming flu season pandemic. And, and the tone so far is let's, in, let's mandate for children. This is a childhood vaccination, which is not going to fly. And people are going to understandably resist that. Or let's just casually say, oh, when you go to get your flu shot, also get another booster. But without any compelling argument as to why particularly healthy younger people need any sort of boosters at this point, yeah. what is the booster doing for you? Yeah. You know, we I know I that everybody over 60 who is in a high risk category should probably get a booster. That That's what right. we know. Or if we you're immunocompromised or anything. else yes. in America should get a booster. And we know that there is a category of people that is young men between the ages of 15 and 30 who almost certainly shouldn't get a booster if you use data from you know studies uh, as your guide that there is a increased risk of myocarditis among this one population. So you can't have a universal mandate vaccine mandate for this because there is actually a category of person who, again, probably shouldn't get it. Abe, you were. Was it Lee Zeldin who said during his debate that? the the covid vaccine should be called a covid shot somebody said it. somebody yeah, said, said it recently. yeah said said it's a therapeutic yeah but it's not a vaccine in the conventional sense because it doesn't interrupt transmission i think that's right um and i and i and i think it would put an end not nothing puts an end to anything but i think it would quiet down a lot of like the 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 hysterical uh, uh, demonization of the vaccine uh, on the one hand um, and and the sort of the, the 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 sort of the kind of idolatry around the vaccine on the other hand it's a COVID shot the same way you get a flu shot yeah the, it's a very good point okay good point let's end on a good point 
We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, and Noam. John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.